Hello everyone, and welcome to Sounds of Science, a series of podcasts hosted by Ucope, a European trade body representing small and mid-sized companies active in health technologies. My name is Victor Martins, I'm the Government Affairs Manager here at Ucope and host on today's podcast. Before moving forward, if you like this sort of content, please consider subscribing to our channel for more and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all the latest news and initiatives in the world of UCO. As we record today, we are on the cusp of one of the most anticipated EU healthcare packages in many years the review of the general pharmaceutical legislation and orphan medicinal products regulation. As part of the European Commission's ongoing review of the general pharmaceutical legislation, or GPL, and orphan medicinal products, or OMP, regulation, there are several potentially controversial policy options that aim to enhance access to medicine and overcome unmet medical needs. We'll be discussing one of those here today, namely that of launch conditionality. Under the proposed system, developers would only receive their full regulatory data protection or orphan exclusivity if they launch their therapies in all 27 member states in a fixed and short time frame. While an admirable ambition, such a condition is far-reaching and creates additional risks for small and mid-sized companies to launch their therapies in the EU. Small and mid-sized companies are key drivers of biopharmaceutical innovation in Europe. They play an important role in the development of new and innovative therapies. So it's crucial that their needs and interests are also considered as part of the review to reinforce an innovative and competitive biopharmaceutical ecosystem in Europe that ensures that these therapies can make it to patients. The EU should avoid implementing policy that discourages innovation, disproportionately punishes small and mid-sized companies and might limit and not improve access. We've got a panel of people to help us unpack the potential impact of launch conditionality on small and mid-sized um, health technology companies today. First of all, we've got Johanna Grams, Senior Manager for International Government Affairs and Health Economics at AOP Health. Hi, Johanna. Hi. And Thomas Bowles, Government Affairs Manager from PTC Therapeutics and a recurring guest. Hello, good afternoon. And we've got Alexander Natz, UCOP Secretary General. My pleasure. Perfect. Well, let's get right into it. And maybe, Thomas, we can start with you. And again, PTC, uh, a mid-sized company with uh, with a few products uh, in Europe at the moment. From from your perspective, what are the, the general challenges faced by a smaller company like PTC in launching a rare disease therapy? Yes, thanks, Victor, for the for the question. You're right. PTC, we're a, a smaller company, mid-sized company, uh, focusing actually exclusively on finding therapies for rare diseases. So when you think of um, that, launching an orphan medicine is already challenging. I think indeed for a mid-sized company, it's maybe even a little bit more challenging. But um, and when I think about it, this like really all hands on deck, right? So, so, um, um, but people are super motivated. I think that I want to bring up first. People are really motivated to bring a meaningful therapy to people who suffer from from a terrible disease, uh, most likely not having a, any any treatment option to date. And so, so 
overall people are really keen to to bring it to the market and so to 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 identify the the um the, the challenges of course you can start already from a from a marketing authorization there's really around a couple of uh, issues. One has, of course, to do with the patient itself. Like, um, can you identify the patient? Can you identify the right patient population? Um, the diagnosis of patients is very challenging with rare diseases, and it's also linked to that many of these rare diseases are completely unknown. If you move to patient access, um, patient access is, of course, very important. Uh, also before approval, so engaging through early access programs is, is quite time consuming and, and takes up a lot of resources internally as well. And then, then ultimately payer discussions, yeah, discussions with payers to really get, get the product agreed in terms of price uh, and, um, and, and access um, are, are sort of the next challenges. And I think overall, these are of course, typical issues that you have to go through, whether it's a rare disease or non-rare disease or larger company or small company i just think that the combination needs to do this all for for an orphan medicine uh and and having sort of somewhat more limited resources uh all over europe in this case um it makes it particularly difficult but i think i want to end with this question on a positive note as i see people around me super motivated that's that's the big thing that comes first of all so very motivated to bring the, the therapy to patients Great. Thanks, Thomas. Sounds like, like, I think kind of sounds like you said, you know, there's a lot of different things all across the pipe, uh, the, yeah. all across the process. But uh, at the end, it's, it's really that motivation of, of the colleagues that helps drive it over the line as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe Johanna as well, maybe asking the same question to you as well from an, from an AOP health perspective. What do you kind of, you know, starting that bigger, that bigger picture perspective, what, what are the general uh, challenges that, that you see maybe building on what Thomas said as well? Well, I'm trying to focus on those aspects where our small to mid-sized organizations have most challenges and build on what Thomas already said. After 25 years, we at AOP Health managed to be a pan-European company present in most European countries. Such local presence is indeed important for having the capability to launch in a fragmented market like Europe with different system requirements. And in some cases, we are still relying on external partners to launch in every country. And as Thomas mentioned, uh, the huge uh, challenge is all the reimbursement negotiations. All those different national reimbursement processes are creating a lot of effort on national level. And this is one reason why, with varying resource, we are struggling with timely launch activities. It's surely impossible for smaller companies to run more than 30 reimbursement negotiations based on more than 30 different health technology assessment requirements. This really needs lots of human and financial resources. And Thomas already mentioned the low number of patients is of course a challenge. You said that recruitment for providing the right data is a challenge and also make sure that the patients are diagnosed. What is more that low patient numbers ultimately lead to low volumes in manufacturing and sales, especially for small countries. However, every country requires local packaging and product information in local language, as well as local pharmacovigilance systems. These country-specific requirements lead to high initial costs, which may not be covered with small sales quantities. However, also Thomas said that already, and I want to underline this. 
we do strive for providing access to every single patient in Europe and around the world. Otherwise, our efforts developing these drugs would not make sense. Thank you, Hannah. And I think kind of you, you, you build on a lot of what, what Thomas, there, uh, Thomas said there. And I think kind of one, one thing really stuck out to me as well is, is that fragmented market. And I think when we talk to a lot of people, people talk about, oh, let's launch in Europe as if it's one holistic thing. I think, like, like you said, you know, we're, we're talking about 27 markets uh, or 27 countries just in the EU and some countries having multiple different processes in, in one country as well. So no, definitely, definitely some, some nice points there to, to kind of show that the, the, the environment we work in. Maybe Thomas, coming back to you, we talked about the general kind of challenges and the general positive mentality you take to it as well. Um, but if we kept kind of the core of today's conversation, launch conditionality, how do you how do you see or how would the introduction of a launch conditionality affects a company like yours in getting these therapies to patients? Yeah, I, th I think um, I think I want to start by saying that I, I understand, let's say, the motivation behind it, and it's a motivation that 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 I think we as companies also share, and that is a desire to get therapies to patients. Right when we we do this. Every day we do, I think also in, internally PTC, but other companies as well, we do our best to get these patients as quickly as possible to patients. We, ha we have an interest in that, of course, uh, that is, that's very intrinsically to our, to our business. But I think the motivation may be right. I think introducing this kind of obligation may be the wrong tool, right? Because I think for, for a whole number of reasons. First of all, I think to use the cliche, I think it takes two to tango, right? So we, we as companies want to bring it to, to patients, but of course also the systems need to allow as well that these products get to patients. So if, if there is a sort of complaint or, or, or an observation that uh, treatments that are approved at the central level by EMA and the commission are not available in all all markets that may have actually many, many, or may, there may be many reasons for it, right? That, that have nothing to do intrinsically just by our decision from a company. And this can be, as I said, many, there are many reasons for that. There can be a lack of patience, right? If we talk about rare diseases or ultra rare diseases, not every country actually does have patience, right? Um, the delays, the, the core of delays is often caused by very protracted and challenging discussions with payers and HTA bodies. And that goes into not only the price, which is sort of favorite topic, but it can be around the data, uh, the exact patient population, uh, the efficacy data uh, being revisited again and, and post-approval obligations. That takes a lot of time to get that settled. And as you already said before, you need to do that 27 times, right? Um, some pricing and reimbursement system of countries don't even allow a sort of speedy pricing and reimbursement discussion because they sort of base their system on the reference pricing system. And therefore they only allow discussion to take place if you already have a price in a number of other countries so that they can establish their reference price. So you can imagine that that will automatically trigger a big uh, delay. And then there is an element that I think, again, is very um, important for for companies like PTC or other rare disease companies, certain technologies don't need to be or cannot be in every country. Like if you look at, at some very exciting technologies like gene therapies, 
some of these gene therapies need to be administered in specialized treatment centers. And these treatment centers are not available for good reasons in every country. And so actually what you want to do is more uh, sort of cross-border health mechanism to bring patients from one country to, an, to these countries where there's a treatment center. So that's another one. Uh, and then finally, of course, and then it's maybe also linked to, you know, we're a smaller company. And so some mundane issues like resources uh, uh, also play a role in the sort of speed that we can uh, entertain these, these various uh, pricing and reimbursement discussions uh, across, across Europe. So, so there's a multitude of reasons why there's a delay. I think there's other, other ways to, to address that, but to, uh, to do this through an EU legislative instrument with an obligation, I think is really not the right way to go. Thanks for that, Thomas. I think you pointed out, you know, it's, it's not one thing, it's not two things. There's, there's a whole myriad of, of, of considerations. Yeah. And I think I just want to go back to the point that you said at the beginning. I think motivation is admirable. We're all working towards the same end goal. It's just a question of how we get there. Maybe if, if I can just kind of stay with you for a second, we, we highlighted kind of, sort of the challenges. You already alluded to some of the solutions. You mentioned cross-border healthcare. I think uh, anyone that's listened to the podcast before knows that's a topic close to your heart. Um, but how, if, if we look at, kind of look at from a solution oriented perspective or kind of innovation driven perspective as well, what sort of regulatory framework do we need to protect and incentivize smaller companies that are really some of the drivers of innovation in Europe and that get these, as you said, kind of really exciting therapies to patients? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we want an, a regulatory framework just for smaller companies, right? I think you want to have more regulatory framework for companies, big or small, that focus on innovation. I think in the end, of the, you know, certainly in the rare disease space, we often talk about the 95% of the rare disease patients don't have a treatment. And so I think it's sort of paramount that any sort of regulatory policy legislative environment in, in Europe stimulates further innovation. We're not there yet, right? We need more therapies, we need more treatments, um, patients need it. And so I think my first point would be is to, to really emphasize that EU legislation and, and policy have a sort of signal function. At the end of the day, you wanna say, this is legislation that, that encourages further R&D manufacturing, et cetera, in, in Europe. And at the moment, the discussions don't go really in that way, right? It's more about um, diluting, cutting, uh, diminishing incentives, et cetera. And I think it gives the wrong signal. So that would be the first one. And the second is I think you want to have an agile regulatory system. Um, the world is moving fast. Technologies are moving fast. And you want to make sure that both the regulatory system, but also the pricing and reimbursement systems can keep up with that. Uh, and in particular, if you look at uh, cell and gene therapies, for example, which, which is a very exciting area, not entirely sure that, that the systems are ready, completely ready for approving and regulating and reimbursing uh, these technologies. And I mean, my final point is that our business depends on very long timelines. Uh, so our development timelines take years, if not more than one single decade. And so predictability and stability is, is a key key factor. We cannot, you know, we really need to, when you go into early research, you need to know what the frameworks and the environment will be. And, um, you know, for the next 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. And so, so this predictability is very important as well. Thanks, Thomas. I think those are some very clear, clear points you've, you've laid out there. 
And I think kind of the, the other element there is, yeah, we talk about the regulatory environment, but there's, I think there's a lot more behind it. There's the, that entire policy environment. I mean, we won't solve uh, solve everything um, with, with one piece of legislation. We need to look at the broader ecosystem that exists. But thanks a lot for that. Johanna, maybe, maybe turning back to you. Um, and I just want to ask you about some of the biggest misconceptions that policymakers might have related to, to launch and access decision making in, in EU member states. I think you've already mentioned a few, Thomas has mentioned a few, but maybe we can tackle that head on. Well, uh, launch and access are not merely a decision of the health technology developments. Um, it's more that access only results after an agreement with the reimbursement systems. And therefore, we truly need constructive discussions to achieve this. And we need solidarity in the European pricing structures and a different approach to the affordability question in order to get there. So it's not only about the regulatory, as we mentioned, it's a lot about the pricing. So what is the biggest misconception that you asked? I'm often observing that policymakers are looking at the EU market as a closed and independent system and forget that we are one of the world markets competing against each other. This can create opposite effects that they do not consider. And Thomas mentioned that as well, when Europe is not attractive for innovative companies to create and implement innovation in Europe, they will not choose Europe to be the first market and European patients will not have timely access to new therapies. And maybe kind of just staying with you as well, um, Thomas lose this as well. He mentioned uh, reference pricing. Um, maybe, maybe you can build on that a bit, Johanna, as well. Kind of what, what is external reference pricing? How does it play a role in shaping the pricing for, uh, for innovation? And how does it affect limited resources that smaller companies have when launching? Is there an impact of, of external reference pricing ultimately when we're talking about innovation and, and launching novel therapies? Maybe let me explain the external reference pricing system first, because it's quite complex. Most payers set their maximum prices, referencing to prices in other countries. And the basket of reference countries, as well as the referencing itself, differ between countries. Calculations can be the average of reference prices, but more likely it's something like the minimum price of a certain country uh, set or the average of the three lowest prices of the reference countries. And with respect to this external reference pricing, prices are set when the product is launched and then prices are adjusted periodically. Based on that system, a low price does not only impact sales in its market, but also lowest prices in all countries directly or indirectly referencing to this market. Today's earnings are financing huge and risky R&D investments, an unpredictable and ever-decreasing price development, which is not considering inflation or currency effects, is not stimulating investment. In other words, if companies' margins are brought down by a mandatory launch without adjustment to current pricing rules, and Thomas mentioned that as well, R&D is simply not possible. Innovation will be stopped, and I think that's really a horror scenario. And you also asked about the impact on launch obligations. If launch shall mean patient access, we do not only need products in warehouses in all countries, but we first 
need an agreement on reimbursement at a viable price for the developer. This is only possible within two or three years without the games of reference pricing. But we need a clever approach for adjustment to the affordability in different countries. Thanks for that. I think I think I just want to point out, kind of pull out two things you said there. I think one is that lack of predictability, and I think both you and Thomas have have really stressed the importance of that for for something like like orphan therapies, where we do have that really long uh, long term time horizon that we're looking at, but also again how that links into that conversation between launching is we are limited by um, by certain countries having the you know having a basket of therapies that require products to be launched in a number of other countries before it can make it to them. So that does, I think, introduce quite a number of uh, of, uh, of challenges that, that might not have been foreseen. Just building on that, from your perspective, what is required to launch a competitive and dynamic pricing that enables greater patient access? Well, after all efforts to develop safe, effective and beneficial treatments, it's in our core interest to help as many patients as possible without treatments. I could imagine four possible solutions for that. One way could be to link prices to GDP or some other objective measures so that differential pricing is possible without this dramatic price interdependencies that I've just described. A second way would be to allow for indication-based pricing because new indications typically lead to a price reduction while investments are made to generate data. A third way could be to install a European fund similar to subsidies in agriculture. In such a way, prices would be equal in European countries, but the impact on national budgets could be eased. And we also need to allow for price increases, as in every other industry. We are facing inflation and bring value for new indications that cover additional and the additional unmet medical need. And I think there would be many more such examples, and we as an industry with our associations are ready for a constructive dialogue. This cannot be addressed one-sidedly. Maybe a final question for you, Johanna. Um, if we're looking at small and mid-sized companies, what are the main drivers of biopharmaceutical innovation, especially for rare diseases? And what sort of framework is needed to protect and reinforce uh, these key players to ensure that the EU becomes or remains really an attractive place for investment and launch? Well, um, we need to simplify and accelerate pricing and reimbursement processes. The initial idea of the UNETA was a lean and fast health technology assessment process across Europe towards a more standardized reimbursement. However, national reimbursement authorities still have the final say and create a complex and inefficient market access landscape. We need a European solidarity concept in healthcare to make sure patients across Europe receive an innovative treatment in time. So forcing especially smaller companies to fight an over complex and inefficient system with a general launch obligation combined with national specifics makes the European market far less attractive and will lead to fewer op treatment options for European patients. And let me underline once more, uh, with our passion, know-how and dedication, we at AOP Health aim to develop and provide treatments to all patients in Europe and around the world. 
Thanks for that. And if I can maybe kind of try to summarize, it's been a really complex conversation, trying to kind of simplify a lot of of complex kind of hard concepts happening all at the same time. I think the key, I think the, the two kind of key buzzwords, key themes that come out for me, what is well, our complexity and kind of that shared ambition, kind of we understand and we share the ambition, it's just a question of how we get there. Maybe what I'd like to do is ask you guys each for any final thoughts. I'm gonna limit you to one or two sentences. You can have a few commas in there, but, but one or two sentences, if you want to kind of leave us with any, any final thoughts from your side on, on this conversation. And maybe Johanna, we can start with you uh, for this one. Well, naturally, uh, we aim to, to provide treatments for patients all across Europe and even further. And we really hope that we can simplify and accelerate all processes that are needed to do so in a way that also small and mid-sized companies can actually achieve that. And as you said, we're now facing very complex systems and I still hope and I'm positive that developments uh, will lead or foster us in a way that every company at, in every size is attracted to bring innovation to European patients. Great, I'm, I'm happy you've got it. You're ending on some positivity there. Uh, Thomas, how about you? Any, any final thoughts? No, I agree with Johanna, and then I think as we as we're as we're discussing this and recording this at the time when the, the proposals are not out yet, I just hope that um, that when the proposals come out next year, um, they are going in the right direction. Meaning that yes, we will get a better, more um, upgraded system, regulatory system that sort of can address the challenges that we we have, and that um, does address some of the challenges that we see in our environment but don't take the wrong the wrong tools for it right and so that's uh, so so let's not try maybe settle everything through legislation but more through a dialogue um involving the different parties would be my my plea for the new year Alex, we've heard a bit from our our colleagues our members about the challenges of launch, of launch conditionality from their perspective but I also want to, to hear kind of from, from your side, looking at it from a, from a broader industry perspective, how you see the challenges of launching a product and the impact of a launch obligation on, on our industry. Thanks, uh, Victor, for the question. And uh, let me first of all say that um, in the general pharmaceutical legislation, we have to do something to make sure that uh, product which is centrally approved, and many orphan drugs, uh, actually all orphan drugs are centrally approved, uh, that we <clears throat> make sure that they um, really get access, uh, that patients get access in all the in all the countries. I think that's really important here that we are getting better also as industry, but also as, as healthcare systems to make sure that centrally approved medicines are available in all the 27 EU countries. And I think that's a starting point for the Commission to look into launch conditionality. But we do think that launch conditionality is not the right, um, the, the, not the right vehicle or mechanism uh, uh, to, to propose in that respect. And that is for various reasons. And the first reason is very hard to define. It's very hard to define what is a launch in Lithuania, what is a launch in uh, France, what is a launch in Spain and Germany. There are all different systems, all different reimbursement systems uh, where it is really difficult to, to define that term of, of launching a medicine. That's the first more technical point. I think um, 
on the on the other hand, there are various other points which make launch conditionality dif difficult. Um, uh, the one point is, is certainly when we look at orphan drugs, and I think uh, when we are talking in the general pharmaceutical legislation, but also in the uh, OMP review, we talk basically about orphan drugs and um, orphan drugs. Uh, there are not always patients in all the countries, so it is really important that we are that we're not overdoing those type of obligations for companies uh, when there's actually no patient in, in, in countries. And when we look at rare diseases, we have seen many countries where there's actually no patients. And at time of launch, many companies don't even know if they have a patient in the smaller countries and how many patients they have in France, Germany, and so on. So there, there are a lot of question marks when it comes to orphan drugs. And I think we need to take that in into consideration. And that's just an example why I think launch conditionality is not the right thing to do. Um, there are other reasons in, in the space, and I think that has clearly been mentioned before. Um, in AT&Ps, where you only have few specialized centers, um, and uh, where just, there's just a lack of expertise in, in, in many countries and in many hospitals to treat patients. So I think we, here we really have to work with cross-border healthcare. We need to get better in the systems which we're actually having for more than 10 years, cross-border healthcare, and we need to make sure that they get fit for purpose uh, for ATMPs. I don't think it needs legislative changes, but um, I think let's work with what we have rather than putting new concepts on the table. Thanks, Alex. I think some some really important points there, and I, I completely agree with you. I think improving access is, is kind of what we're all moving towards. It's not we're, we're moving in different directions. We just see different approaches, if I, if I can put it that way. You mentioned uh, cross-border healthcare. We have Tom, we had Thomas as well on today's podcast talking about that as well. Is there anything else you see as how we might need to be able to to improve access or encourage access, especially for low volume products, small companies or innovative technologies? Is there anything else we should think of beyond cross-border? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, uh, there is a phenomenon uh, which people uh, tend to talk about uh, quite a bit, but which is not always so much in the public discussion in Brussels. It's called international reference pricing. I mean, we all know that countries look at each other when they set prices for pharmaceuticals. And we have always been, seeing as part of the solution a concept of differential pricing with confidential discounts i'm i'm uh, not a believer at all in the concept of uh, uh, transparency of pricing in the concept that this in, in the fact that this would lead to to lower prices i think by the opposite we have seen many examples in the countries that by uh, having differential uh, differential pricing with confidential discounts that this is actually positive for access that this would grant access so one concept i would want to mention in this context is uh, is uh, differential pricing with confidential discounts because that gives uh, companies the ability to actually adapt their prices uh, in the low cost countries to the gdp per capita in those countries while maintaining other prices in other countries uh, which are then not immediately importing the price of the low uh, price countries into the high price countries. So I think that that's really um, an important concept, a concept which needs to be talked about in this con uh, concept. But the other one is certainly cross-border healthcare. We need to make sure that patient access is, is really getting better in this space, especially in, in, in cell and gene therapies, where we've seen really challenges for um, the, the challenge that member states have actually not really um, have not been willing to reimburse uh, uh, treatments abroad in ATMPs. They've been willing to uh, um, to reimburse uh, for low-cost uh, surgeries in other countries, but not really for 
uh, for ATMPs for areas where there is a higher medical need, uh, and that I think needs to change. Fantastic. I think two very very concrete policy or or yeah policy proposals to to maybe kind of move the needle and and shape that access environment there as well. I'm sure we've had a few listeners that have read uh, your your recent op-ed as well, Alex, on um, launch condition conditionality, where you also touched on the fact that a, a launch conditionality, as it's currently being explored by the Commission, just saying, "Hey, companies, launch in a limited period of time, and that will address um, that will address access challenges," doesn't maybe doesn't look at the full picture. I think uh, in in that op-ed, you also talked about the fact that and we're not putting any any obligations on countries to really kind of participate in that exercise. Is there anything you want to, to reflect on from that perspective as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 uh, I'm a bit puzzled about this this whole concept, I must say, uh, and and because it's not really clear what the Commission intends to propose there, and it has drastic consequences. It has the consequence of actually um, drastically. Uh, reducing exclusivities for 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 the companies, both on in, probably both in the orphan space and the non-orphan space, when it comes to regulatory data protection. So I'm I'm really puzzled um, if we're doing the right thing for the simple reason that companies and investors need predictability. They need to know how much exclusivity is there in order to make that uh, investment upfront um, for products to to reach the market in four or five years. So I think that's really that's really. In my opinion, not really positive for innovation. If you if you leave people in the dark, whether there is a launch or another topic, not our today's topic, whether there's an unmet medical need. So any unpredictability, any 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 question marks around uh, uh, IP rights for companies is really negative for innovation. I wanted to make that point very clear here, and um, this is what I fear we will do with those two concepts: the launch conditionality and the unmet medical need. Um, one other element, which is more like the small, uh, mid-sized company perspective, is really that I think the Commission is 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 overestimation or overestimating the the uh, capabilities of mid-sized and small companies when they're saying they can simply launch in two years all over the 27 EU countries. Many of those companies they have in Europe 10 people, they have in Europe maybe 20 people. Some mid-sized companies which have already launched products in the market, they still would not have people on the ground in all the 27 EU countries, they might have three or four people in the bigger member states. But how would how would the Commission foresee that mid-sized and small companies could actually uh, uh, launch products in two years in, in the 27 EU countries? I think, and that is really one of the, the, the biggest criticism we have in that, in, in that uh, area, is that it disfavors small and mid-sized companies. And when it comes to uh, intellectual property rights, we shouldn't distinguish between big companies and small companies. And uh, this is really something I would like to make very clear that smaller and mid-sized companies are disfavored by the launch, condition, uh, launch conditionality proposal, uh, which the Commission is likely to put on the table in the next year. So uh, that's one of the main uh, um, critical points we see here. No, thanks, Alex. That's that's an especially important point. Is indeed looking at kind of how how this impacts those small and mid-sized companies, often the drivers of innovation as well, the ones at the cutting edge of these kind of technologies. And I think as well, I think the, the another important point to to mention there is that kind of when the Commission's looking at the conditionality or the proposal at the moment, it's an obligation on companies, but we don't really see any any kind of real pressure or drive for for member states to. To, to come to that agreement within within two years, three years either. So I think it's 
there's an element of proportionality to be looked at as well. Alex, thanks so much for for joining us today. I don't know if you've got any final thoughts, any any last messages you want to share with us. Yeah, I think I I, I made the, all the most relevant points from my perspective. I think there are solutions on the table, cross-border healthcare, differential pricing with confidential discount, and we need to make sure that actually we are not forgetting about the rights of the small companies, which have e equal rights than bigger companies. Uh, when it comes to intellectual property rights, we shouldn't disfavor smaller companies uh, just because of the fact that they don't have the resources on the ground in all the 27 EU countries. So that's really my main point here I wanted to make. Great. Well, I think I think this conversation has made it clear that there is there's desire to drive innovation. There's a desire to make sure that these therapies make it to patients, because that's ultimately, I think, what we're all working towards. And perhaps even some optimism uh, for for what might come with the review of the regulations. Um, but that this is maybe only only a part of a bigger whole. I think when we talk about some of the, the incentives we've mentioned here, launch conditionality, great. You know, we, we appreciate what you're trying to do there, but we're worried about what some of the adverse effects might be, especially on, on the small and mid-sized companies. They are fundamental to the survival and growth of the pharmaceutical ecosystem here in Europe. And I think kind of our guests, Johanna and Thomas, have really shown kind of where, with your insights, where uh, where some of those challenges lie, and as well as the opportunities. And hopefully uh, some of this gets taken up by, by our colleagues in the EU institutions. So thanks so much, Johanna and Thomas, for joining us today. And, uh, and let's hope that uh, some of these messages, uh, we see them come to fruition in the new year. Thanks a lot for having us. Thanks for the discussion. It was a pleasure to be here. That's it for this episode of Sounds of Science, the podcast that keeps you up to date with the most pressing policy files and news in the world of European life science. We are UCOPE, the European trade body for small and mid-sized innovative companies working in the field of health technologies. You can stay up to date with our work by engaging with us on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting our website, www.ucope.org. Thanks for listening.